It's good to be with you this morning. A bit of a wet and dreary day outside, but that's okay. We're thankful for the rain and we're thankful for any opportunity that we have to assemble here in this comfortable building in order to worship God and in order to build up and encourage one another. And uh, if you're visiting with us today, then as was said earlier, we want to thank you and welcome you. We're glad that you have chosen to come and worship with us today, and we hope that you will give us an opportunity to get to know you a little bit, and maybe there's some way in which we can serve you or help you, or maybe a question that you have about the church and about why we do what we do and who we are, and we would be happy to be able to sit down and open up the Bible and answer those questions for you at any time. So please feel free and and, uh, reach out and and ask us uh, if you would like. The Roman Emperor Domitian ruled from 81 to 96 AD, and one of the things that's remembered about him is the fact that he demanded recognition as a god. In fact, Suetonius says that the emperor often referred to himself as divine and that he would uh, put into circulation a stationary in which he referred to himself simply as our Lord and our God. Domitian was assassinated in 96 AD, and Domitian wasn't the first, and he wouldn't be the last king to exalt himself as a god, the practice known as self-deification. In fact, from the pharaohs of Egypt to the Babylonians and the Persians, Alexander the Great and various emperors of Rome Over and over again, we have examples of mortal men who have viewed themselves as far more than what they really were. The Greeks had a word for this, and that word was hubris. That word is defined like this, an overweening presumption that leads a person to disregard the divinely fixed limits on human action in an ordered cosmos. I'll say that again. It is the overweening presumption that leads a person to disregard divinely fixed limits on human action in an ordered cosmos. In other words, it is the idea that a person forgets that they are but human. It is the practice of a person who forgets that they have limitations placed upon them because they are human. And throughout history, More than one person has fallen into this trap, and here's the thing, every single one of them eventually died and learned a very important truth, and that is that they were merely human, and they, in their death, would acknowledge finally what they refused to acknowledge in life, and that is that there is only one sovereign ruler of the universe, that's Jehovah, and as Daniel 4 verse 17 says, the most high God rules in the kingdoms of men. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, the word sovereignty basically has to do with God's absolute lordship and his absolute dominion. Sovereignty is lordship and lordship is ownership and ownership is control. So when we say God is sovereign, we're talking about the fact that because he is the creator, he has the sovereign right to rule. He has the sovereign right to to exist as Lord. He has the sovereign right to control his creation. God is described as the God of all the earth, Isaiah chapter 54 and verse number 5. 
He is the Lord of all the earth. Joshua chapter 3 and verse number 11. He is described in this way, the Lord most high over all the earth. Psalm 97 and verse number 9. And as we apply that, the idea of God being the sovereign Lord or the sovereign ruler, that applies even to those rulers and those kings and so on that that sit upon the throne in this world. What does Romans chapter 13 verse 1 and 2 say? Paul tells us that there there is no authority or no rule except of God that's what God, that's what the Bible tells us. There's not a person that sits on a throne or sits in a position of power anywhere that doesn't sit in that position because God has allowed it to be so. Daniel 2 and verse 21 says that it is God who removes kings and who raises up kings. Psalm 22, 28 says that it is God who rules over the nations. He reigns over the nations and he sits on his holy throne, Psalm 47, verse number 7 and 8. And I want you to think with me just for a moment about some of the kings and some of the nations that are well known, that are addressed in the Bible, even those kings and nations that were Gentile, that were not uh, kings of Israel. You think about the Amorites in Genesis chapter 15. There's an important statement in Genesis 15, verse 12 to 16, about the Amorites. You remember that God said to Abraham that their iniquity was not yet full. The idea being that although they were a, although they were a pagan nation, yet to use the language of Paul in Acts chapter 17... They still had the same creator. They still had the. Uh, they still had a responsibility to that creator. And God said in Genesis chapter fifteen, verse twelve to sixteen, their iniquity is not yet full, meaning that God was watching them and God knew exactly what was going on there, and they were not going to be destroyed because of their iniquity until God said that the time was right for it to happen. Even Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. They marched into Jerusalem on three different occasions, and on the third time, they finally sacked the city, burned the walls of the city, destroyed the walls of the city, and burned the temple to the ground. And yet, Jeremiah chapter 27, verse 5 and 6 says that all of that happened only because God allowed it. But then 70 years later, according to Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28 and following, there is a Persian ruler by the name of Cyrus who ascends to the throne, and God will call him in Isaiah chapter 44, my shepherd. Meaning that Cyrus, although he was a Persian, although he was a pagan, yet he was in some way serving and fulfilling a purpose in the overall plan of God It is a statement that has to do with the sovereignty of God. You see, it doesn't matter who a person happens to be, we all live and serve under the rule of our sovereign God. That means every single person in every single place all over this world, we all live and serve under the rule of one sovereign God, and that includes kings and nations and presidents and congressmen and anyone and everyone, whatever position of power they might possess. But here's the question that we want to consider this morning. What happens when we forget? 
What happens when we forget like Domitian did and like Alexander the Great and like so many others that the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men? What happens when we refuse to acknowledge the sovereign right to rule that, that re- resides only in the hands of God? I want us to look this morning as time allows at three illustrations that are found in the Bible that will help to answer this question. And our first is going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 15. If you'd like to be opening your Bibles to that chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 15. Perhaps one of the most tragic passages in all of the Bible is found before this in 1 Samuel chapter 8. When the children of Israel cried out to uh, God by way of Samuel and said, Samuel, we want a king to rule over us. We want to be like all the nations that are around us. Give us a king. And Samuel spoke to God about the matter. And you remember that God said, Samuel, they've not rejected you. They have rejected me as being their king. They don't want me to rule over them anymore. So God chose a man and his name was Saul. And according to 1 Samuel chapter 9 and verse number 2, Saul had all of the physical qualifications to be king. If you were to draw a picture of what the ideal king of the ancient world would look like, Saul would fit the bill. He was handsome, he was tall, he was strong, he had charisma, he had all of the physical characteristics that would be required or at least thought to have been required in a king, except one very important thing, his heart was far from what it needed to be. Three times in the book of uh, 1 Samuel, three times Saul disqualified himself from being king over Israel because of his heart. The first is in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 8 to 15. Samuel had instructed Samuel had instructed Saul to go and to wait in Gilgal for a period of seven days, and then Samuel would come, and then he would offer sacrifice. But Saul got anxious when Samuel didn't come in the time that was allotted, and so Saul offered unauthorized sacrifice on his own. He took it upon himself. He did that which was not appropriate for him, and the Bible tells us in that context that he lost the kingdom because of it. God was seeking someone who was a man after his own heart, talking about David. The third is in 1 Samuel chapter 28. After Samuel's death, whenever Saul finds himself in a very precarious position, he hasn't heard anything from the Lord, and so he goes and he finds the witch of Endor, a medium, and he seeks to get some answer from God through her, and he will be condemned because of this action. And again, for the third time, he will be told, you've lost your kingdom. But we want to look at the second occasion this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15, the instructions of this chapter are very simple. The command is found in 1 Samuel 15 and verse number 3. God said this, Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, and camel and donkey. The instructions are very, very clear, but Saul does not follow them. According to 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse number 9, Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, 
the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Underline that word, unwilling. Saul and the people were unwilling. Translation, they were unwilling to do what it was that God told them to do. Later on, verse number 13, Samuel arrives and... When Samuel went to Saul, Saul said, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, Oh, really? Well, then what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? If you've really, if you've really followed and kept the commandment of the Lord, then why is it that you save some of these things alive? We find the answer in verse 22 and 23. Samuel said to Saul, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Now listen to this next part. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. You see, the problem with Saul... The problem with Saul, according to 1 Samuel chapter 15, is that he was rebellious. And I want you to notice as you study through this chapter that there is an emphasis here on words. You see, the, 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 uh, the sign, if you will, or the area of Saul's rebellion is in the fact that he refused to listen to God. In 1 Samuel 15 verse 1 and 2, Samuel said to Saul, listen to the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts. But then as Samuel will confront Saul for his refusal, his lack of following the Lord's will, Saul will blame it on everyone else. But look at the emphasis on words. Then came the word of the Lord, verse 10. Follow or obey my commandments, verse number 11. The commandment of the Lord, verse 13, verse 24. The Lord has said, verse 16. The voice of the Lord, verse 19 and 20. Listen, verse 22. The word of the Lord, verse 23 and 26. Over and over again, there is this emphasis on the words and the voice of God. But look at verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and I obeyed. What? I obeyed their voice. You see, Saul was king over Israel, but what Saul forgot is that there was a God in heaven who granted him and made him king over Israel, and that voice the voice of God, the voice of the Lord, the voice of the one who made him king. That was the only voice that Saul needed to listen to, but Saul didn't. He listened to his own voice, and he listened to the voice of the people, and because he refused to listen to God, he was rejected and he lost his kingdom. Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 23 says, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walks to direct his steps. What does that mean? That means that man left to his own devices will always find himself in ruin. And so therefore, man must always listen to God. Look in your Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 17 for a moment, verse 18 to 20. And see if you can find something that would have helped Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15. 
Deuteronomy chapter 17, I want you to begin reading with me in verse number 18. Listen to what God said. Now, keep in mind that this is law given before Israel ever asked for a king. But God knew that someday they would, and so here's what he said. He said, also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests and the Levites. We're talking about the king. And it shall be with him. What shall be with him? The law of God shall be with the king, and he will read it all the days of his life. Why? So that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes. And here's the reason why. So that his heart may not be lifted up above his brethren that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, and that he may pray, prolong his days in his kingdom, he and, the, and his children in the midst of Israel. God, why, it, why are you commanding that every king over Israel has a copy of your law and they read it every day? Here's the reason why. So that he doesn't become prideful. So that he doesn't stop listening to my voice and instead listen to his own voice and the voice of the people. Do you think that Saul could have been helped by those instructions in 1 Samuel 15? Absolutely, he could have. But the problem is that he listened to his own voice, verse 17. He lied to himself, he lied to Samuel, and he lied to God, verse 12 and 13. He was prideful, verse 17. He was full of blind self-assurance, verse 13. He had an inability to see his own faults, and he rebelled against God's commands. And I want you to look at one more passage from the book of 1 Chronicles, chapter 10, and read the sad commentary, the sad summary of the life of Saul as king. 1 Chronicles, chapter 10, listen to verse 13. The Bible says this, So Saul died for his unfaithfulness which he had committed against the Lord because he did not keep the word of the Lord. That is a direct reference to 1 Samuel 15. But there's more. And also because he consulted a medium for guidance, that's 1 Samuel chapter 28, but he did not inquire of the Lord, therefore he killed him, and he turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. What lesson did Saul learn? Saul learned that, you know what, you may be king over Israel, but God is the one who made you king over Israel, and so you better listen to him, and you better do exactly what he says. Let's look at another example. This will probably be our last. Look at uh, the book of Daniel. We've been studying the book of Daniel Wednesday night on Wednesday nights, and you know that in Daniel chapter 4 and verse number 17 and a couple of other places in that chapter, we have this statement that the most high rules in the kingdoms of men, and he gives it to whomsoever he will. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, was one of the greatest monarchs of ancient time. He ascended to the throne in 605 B.C. He ruled for 43 years. He was a heralded military commander. He was a successful architect and builder. And his success overall as king is unquestioned. But as we know from our study of the first four chapters of this book, the one thing that he struggled with, just like Saul, more than anything else, is that he struggled to recognize that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. You see, Daniel 2, verse 36, and Daniel 3, verse 37 and 38, they both tell us two very important truths. And that is the fact that it is God who gave Nebuchadnezzar his kingdom in the first place. 
Listen to Daniel chapter 3, or excuse me, Daniel chapter 2 and verse number 36 and following. Daniel says, you, O king, are a king of kings, and here's why. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom and power and strength and glory, and wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand. And he has made you ruler over them. You are this head of gold. Jeremiah prophesied of this in Jeremiah chapter 27, verse 5 and 6. And in Jeremiah chapter 21 and verse number 7, God said, I'm going to raise up Nebuchadnezzar. I'm going to raise up Babylon. And I am going to give Israel into his hand. But Nebuchadnezzar, as we study through the book of Daniel, struggled to recognize that. You remember in Daniel chapter 2 that God reveals. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and Nebuchadnezzar had to learn that there is only one God who has the ability to reveal the meaning of dreams. You remember in chapter 3 that Nebuchadnezzar learned that God rescues. He created an image, a physical image, an idol, and he commanded that all people bow down and worship that idol. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to do it. And so he threw them in the fiery furnace, and he looked into that furnace, and he saw four individuals. He saw four men who were standing unharmed. And he learned that there's only one God who has the ability to rescue. And then in chapter 4, he learned that God rules. He had another dream, and Daniel came and interpreted this dream, and Daniel said, King, here's what's going to happen. You're going to turn into an animal. You are going to walk on all fours. You're going to eat grass as an animal, as a beast. And the reason why, according to verse 17 and verse 25 and verse 32, is so that you may finally learn that you didn't do any of this by yourself. So the Bible tells us in verse in verse number 30, that the king spoke and said, Is this great Babylon, is this not great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? Where does Nebuchadnezzar place the focus? He places it on himself. And scripture tells us in the next verse, while the word was still in the king's mouth, the voice fell from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it has been spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and here's why. Verse 32, so that you may know that the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men and gives it to whomsoever he will. Nebuchadnezzar was like Saul. He learned the hard way that though he was king and though he had been uh, put in a position of greatness and though he had even uh, conquered the children of Israel, he didn't do any of that on his own. He did it because God allowed it to happen. As we begin to wrap, uh, bring our time to a close, I want to consider quickly one more illustration, this time in the New Testament. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, and I want us to consider the empire of Rome. You see, the problem with Saul, or what Saul had to recognize about the sovereignty of God, is that you've got to listen to the voice and the word of God. What Nebuchadnezzar had to learn about the sovereignty of God is that God rules. He sits on the throne and he gives the kingdoms of men to whoever he desires. What Rome had to learn about the sovereignty of God is that God will be victorious. You see, Rome was the most powerful nation of the ancient world, as we all well know. 
What began as a small city-state grew into republic and ultimately into an empire whose power, influence, and dominance over the ancient world was unrivaled. But what we also know is that Rome would eventually set herself up as the enemy of God's people and would be defeated. And as we look at the book of Revelation, we have a book of signs, we have a book of symbols, and the purpose of those signs and those symbols was to give encouragement to the children of God was to strengthen the church so that the church may know that it doesn't matter who sits on what throne in whatever kingdom, the, the one who really sits on the throne is God. So in Revelation chapter 4, as the events begin to unfold, what do we see? We see God. We see God who is sitting on his throne, a God who is a God of holiness and righteousness and judgment and power, and the image is for the purpose of letting us know that whatever whatever man thinks about however much power or control he may have here on earth, there's really only one king who has power and authority and control, and that's God. And in Revelation chapter 6, verse 15 through 17, John sees the sixth seal opened, and I want you to read with me in Revelation 6, beginning in verse 15, what he sees and what he hears when that seal is opened. Listen to this passage. The Bible says, The kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks on the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? And the answer is found in chapter 7, verse 1 and 2. After these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Again, all of this is meant not to necessarily be taken literally, but to to emphasize a point, to emphasize a principle. And the principle is this. In Revelation 6, verse 15 through 17, he sees an announcement of the the, uh, coming of God's wrath. And he asks the question, who's going to be able to stand when God's wrath comes? And the answer, according to chapter 7, verse 1, 2, and 3, is it's going to be God's people. Victory is given to them in Revelation chapter 7. Victory is announced again in chapter 11. And then in chapter 12, we're introduced to the great fiery red dragon who is the devil, who is behind the abuse of the Lord's people. Then we're introduced to the beast of the sea and the beast of the land and the harlot of Babylon and the men who wear the mark of the beast in chapters 13 and 14. But then in chapter 15, we see each and every one of these systematically defeated one after the other. And I want you to notice with me Roman, excuse me, Revelation chapter 15, beginning in verse number 1. This is what the scripture says, Revelation 15, 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast 
over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship you, for your judgments have been manifested. What's the point? What's the lesson? The lesson is, again, remember, we're reading about a book written to, written to Christians who are suffering under the hand of a persecuting empire in the first century, and God says, listen, they don't win. All of these images were designed to communicate the fact that God was going to have the victory, and regardless of whether it's Rome or anyone or any place else, anyone or any entity that sets themselves up as the enemy of God's people, the Bible tells us God will win the victory. In fact, if you'll look in your Bibles at Psalm 9 just for a moment, you'll notice something that's very interesting. Look at Psalm 9. And I want you to notice with me verse number uh, 17 through 20. Psalm 9, verse 17 to 20. What does the psalmist have to say about kings and nations who forget that God reigns on the throne? He says, the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. And look at verse 19 and 20. Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let not the nation, or excuse me, let the nations be judged in your sight. Put them in fear, O Lord. Listen to this, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. You think Alexander the Great viewed himself at any point in his life of being, of being uh, indestructible? What about Nero? What about Domitian? What about Claudius? What about Nebuchadnezzar? What about Saul? What about Rome? Do you suppose that any of those kings or any rulers or any of those nations or anyone since them in the stage of human history has ever viewed themselves as being, as being indestructible, as being untouchable? The psalmist says, God, judge them and remind them that they are touchable. They are just men. You see, that's the beautiful thing about a study of the sovereignty of God. When we come to learn that the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men and gives them to whomsoever he will, what we learn is that God is the one who is in control, and in that we can take great comfort. The Amorites eventually met their end Pharaoh eventually met his end. Nebuchadnezzar, Rome, every single one met their end. And the Bible tells us that every ruler of every nation that has ever existed on planet earth or ever will exist, they're going to give an account to the most high God for how it is that they carry out the position that God allowed them to have in the first place, according to Romans chapter 13, verse 1 and verse 2. So I direct your minds as we wrap, our, wrap up this morning to one more passage. I want you to look with me at the book of Habakkuk, and I want you to notice how Habakkuk ends his book in Habakkuk chapter 3. The reason why we're looking at this passage is because Habakkuk should be studied chronologically right along with Daniel and right along with Ezekiel. And the reason is because this is a book in which the prophet is asking God about Babylon, 
God tells uh, Habakkuk in Habakkuk chapter 1 that Nebuchadnezzar was going to come and was going to defeat Israel. He was going to destroy them and he was going to take them into captivity. And Habakkuk, just like anybody else, just like any one of us, struggled to wrap his mind around that and to comprehend it. It's as if Habakkuk knew immediately that things were going to get very bad and he wondered, how, would, how do we work through all of this? And so that's what this book is all about, is him working through it. He is, uh, he is a wondering prophet in chapter 1. He has questions. He is a watching prophet in chapter 2. He, he receives the answer, but it doesn't make a lot of sense to him. So he says, I'm going to sit back and I'm going to watch and wait, and I'm going to let God work this out. But in chapter 3, he is a worshiping prophet. Look what he says in verse 17. He says, though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the, olive of the, excuse me, the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, and though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me to walk on my high hills." Habakkuk, what are you saying? Here's what I'm saying, and here is the point that we need to take from this study this morning. The point that Habakkuk is simply making is that he knows that no matter what happens, God sits on the throne. And the psalmist tells us in Psalm 37, I've been young and I've been old, yet I've never seen uh, I've never seen uh, his seed forsaken, uh, nor his descendants begging bread. He tells us, do not fret because of evildoers. He tells us simply to commit our way to the Lord and trust him, and the the Lord will provide for us the things that we need. The Lord will take care of us, and what God has taught us throughout every phase of history, uh, throughout the entirety of Scripture, is no matter how bad things get, how good or bad they may get, God always takes care of his people. He's always there. He always watches over them. And God will win the victory. It may have been the case that kings like Domitian claimed themselves to be Lord and God. It may have been the case that there were rulers of all kinds throughout history that looked upon the things that they had accomplished and viewed themselves basically as having done all of that all by themselves without any help from anyone or any other being at all. But the thing about every person and every ruler throughout history who proclaimed themselves to be deity is that they're all dead, every one of them. There's only one king and one ruler who has never and will never die and who will never lose his power or be defeated, and that, ladies and gentlemen, is Jehovah. He sits on the throne. We serve him, and in that we find, in that we find our strength and our comfort. Now, it may be this morning, as we uh, conclude our lesson, that there's someone here who has not yet become a child of this great king. The Bible says that God's desire is for every person to be a Christian, for every person to be a member of the kingdom of God. And the way that that happens is that we believe in the deity of Jesus, according to John 3 and verse 16. 
that we repent of our sins according to Acts 3 and 19, that we confess our faith according to Romans 10, verse 9 and 10, that we, are, uh, that we repent of our, uh, that we are baptized in water for the forgiveness of our sins according to Acts 2 and verse 38. And when we do that, then our great sovereign God, the King and ruler of all of the universe, who loves every single one of us individually, he will add us to the body of Jesus Christ, which is his kingdom. Are you ready to make that step this morning? If so, we stand ready to help you. This morning, maybe you're a Christian and you're struggling with discouragement. Maybe there's some sin that you're dealing with in your life. Is there something we can, can we pray for you? Can we help you? Can we give you some encouragement or direction in some way? Whatever need you might have, we invite you to come and let it be known while we stand and sing together.